This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley and this is a special edition recorded with a live Times Plus audience at the News Building. Terrific round of applause with some sarcasm. Uh, (laughs) Now, normally we might grapple with straightforward questions when we do these debates. Straightforward questions like how to solve Brexit. Why is Theresa May so bad? How does Jeremy Corbyn still cling on? But tonight, we're going to ask one of the big ethical questions of our time, which I don't think gets discussed enough in Westminster moment. Who rules (coughs) the robots? We hear so much about advances in artificial intelligence, but is it all for the good? Can global tech firms be controlled? within national borders? How will centuries of laws keep pace with algorithms that can be tweaked in seconds? Who decides what we do and don't see online? Are there any jobs that robots can't do? Can a driverless car decide to just run someone over? And ultimately, if we make a robot more clever than we are, do we end up becoming pets? We might not be able to answer all of those questions in the next hour or so, but we've got a cracking panel who are going to give it a damn good go. I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, and the first minister to set up an app about themselves, imaginatively, if slightly creepily named, the Matt Hancock app. <laughs> Tamandra Harkness is presenter of the BBC Radio 4 series Future Proofing, a science comedian and author of Big Data, Science Does Matter, which I read to prepare for tonight. It's a brilliant primer. Uh, If you want to try and get your head around all of this stuff, it goes right back to the people living in caves, them grappling with data, ice age data, right up, right up to date. Uh, Dame Wendy Hall is a Regis Professor of Computer Science at the University of Southampton and last year carried out an independent review for the government on the artificial intelligence industry. And Tom Whipple is the Times Science Editor, whose job it is to try and separate fact from science fiction and try not to scare us all every morning. Please welcome the panel. (laughs) So what I thought we'd do to try and dip our toe into this subject before we get stuck right in is separate the good, the bad and the ugly. The real benefits artificial intelligence can bring, the risks that come with it and the worst case scenario of a robot apocalypse. So I want to start with the panel, uh, just ask you each in a sentence or two, just give us one reason to be cheerful and excited and optimistic about artificial intelligence and one reason for us all to be terrified. Let's start with you, Tamanda. <laughs> okay, well, my, my kind of cheerful vision 
is perhaps unfashionably, it's not a human-shaped robot bringing you a cup of tea, nice as that would be. It's actually, and as we sit here kind of looking out over London, I'm pretty old school and I still want my flying car. And <laughs> artificial intelligence, I think, and I'm, I'm going to nail my clothes to the mast here, I think workable self-flying cars will be here before workable self-driving cars can share the roads with human beings because there are fewer things to hit out there. There is no cyclists and there's no pedestrians. And swarm robotics actually opens up the possibility that flying cars could fly themselves around like a murmuration of starlings and we could fly all over the city. So I, I really am holding out for that. Dystopian vision... I'm afraid there's, there's too many to choose from. I'm actually going to go for one that I got from the news today, possibly not from this August publication, but it's, um, it's a new project. It's actually from the Engineer magazine. Unobtrusive opera project to sense health in the home. Sounds great, right? In older people living independently in the home. Um, and it basically, it's, the idea is it uses Wi-Fi to sense where and when you're moving around in your own home and are you being active enough because we all know that's really important for health and they use the phrase um, opportunistic passive radar for non-cooperative contextual sensing <laughs> which does make me think of you're in your home you're not moving around you're not notching up your steps because you've tied your step counter to the dog and instead you're sitting on the sofa eating pizza but, but this, but this Wi-Fi thing has detected that you're not being sufficiently active and not meeting your health targets, and therefore you're probably going to be refused your hip operation by the NHS, assuming the NHS still exists. I thought you were going to see me catapulted out of the sofa. Ah, no, well, maybe that I could get behind. But no, no, just the idea that there will be kind of ubiquitous monitoring of everything we do and we'll be expected to meet targets for healthy living and physical activity. Um, puts the shivers up me, rather. So, Matt, what's your, what's your reason to be cheerful? I think my, my reason to be cheerful is that is advances in medicine. I think this is the one area that is ripe for significant progress and quite soon. Um, there's an extraordinary study that shows that the use of big data can reduce by a third the number of, um, of breast cancer operations that are needed by better detecting cases where the doctor, human doctor, thinks that a mastectomy is needed, uh, but the big data shows that it isn't. Uh, and that's one example, but right across the, the piece, um, the, there's opportunities in uh, medicine which are really, really positive and life-affirming and literally life-giving. And, um, uh, and people sometimes ask, why don't we have a British Facebook and Google or, uh, uh, and the big data companies? It's interesting that one of our single biggest uh, data repositories as a country is the NHS. And by the nature of having... Uh, a, um, a national healthcare system. Uh, we, it, it's one of the biggest single systems of, uh, of uh, health data in the developed world, and uh, it's, a, it's a massive opportunity. And what about what keeps you awake at night? Well, they, I, I'm worried about um, uh, lots of things. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm quite worried about, uh, about keeping up with adversaries in the uh, military use of artificial intelligence, and I think it's very, very important that we and friendly, like-minded countries, essentially allies, geopolitically stick together and make these advances uh, that are, uh, are necessary. Um, I'm also really worried about entrenched, entrenching biases into the 
into the into the um, into the algorithm. We are all um, we're all flawed human beings, um, even the journalists, and um, <laughs> and we all make mistakes. But when you put that into an algorithm, especially when you're trying to work out how people behave differently, you can end up really entrenching those and, 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 and de designing the architecture of artificial intelligence so that it designs out rather than designs in those biases is, is mission critical. Well, uh, come on to that uh, later. Wendy, what's your, what excites you most? Um, well, lots of things. Uh, I've been in this world for a long time and um, I was driven very much as a child by science fiction and reading science fiction into science. And things like um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was one of my uh, Bibles. And, you know, we have the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've got Wikipedia. Um, and also, the, um, in the, who remembers Blake 7, where you could, <laughs> you had uh, Zed and Orac, and, you know, having a Zed that uh, could tell you what you needed to know when you needed to know. Well, we've sort of, we've got, we can see some of that. And, and systems like, you know, uh, platforms like Google, they use AI a lot. I mean, it's not like it's AI is something new yeah. that, um, you know, good old-fashioned AI, as it's sometimes called, Google uses that all the time. It's a recommender system. It uses natural language processing. What the links we follow, Google uses to better the algorithms. Um, so I was, in a way, I am amazed that in my career, I've seen some of the things that I was, you know, so passionate about actually emerge. And I think that's very exciting. And I, I would echo uh, what Matt said about, um, you know, health and the, the asset of the health service is huge for the UK. My vision of that is bones in Star Trek. Right, that's, you know, be able to just say, right, this is what's wrong with you. Here's the machine, and tell you know that's how we're going to sort it out. Um, so that's, but actually, the one I'll state because medicine's the, sort of an obvious one, and we really are already, you know, beginning to look at that is education. Because I, um, I was a natural mathematician, and um, luckily, I think, and I uh, never had a problem with maths. I loved it, and I could do all, all that was given to me. But I was always a hopeless. I've been a hopeless skier. And, I, <laughs> you know, while other people sort of progress from the nursery slopes up to doing real births, I'm still on the nursery slopes, falling over. The instructors get bored with picking you up. And eventually I'd just trundle off because there wasn't anyone giving me any help. I'd trundle off to the bar because there wasn't anything better to do. And that's what I see with kids who can't... If you can't do maths, it's really hard. Um, and I learned from my skiing analogy that I, I, need, I needed someone to really help, personally help me learn how to ski and that's what kids who can't do maths which is so and going to be so important for careers in the future they need that personal tuition most families can't afford it but ai can give us that personal tuition my first work in ai back in 1980 something was intelligent tutoring systems and today we really can be begin to deliver them so that's my wonderful thing the dystopia well there's lots of these i would <laughs> again echo matt about the warfare, and I think our next real battles are going to be in the cyberspace. Um, you know, we're quite well prepared in the UK to think about that, but it's going to be a very different type of warfare to the to may uh, to what we've had in the past, and could be quite subtly different, uh, scary. Um, I, I do think there's an issue. You said what about the robots and what can't they do? Well, I was what what couldn't the Daleks do? What couldn't the Daleks do? Climb stairs, climb stairs <laughs> right? And uh, in fact, in the end, I think they did, didn't they? They have actually learned how to climb stairs. But I mean, the thing is I see a very dystopian future quite quickly 
if we're not careful, where um, you know, robots will be trained to do particular things, uh, and, but they, there'll be lots of stuff around that that they can't do, and they'll have to, we'll have to, they or we will have to employ human beings at slave labour rates to do what the robots tell them to do. And I think that's quite a dystopian future that could emerge relatively quickly if we're not astute to that. And then there is, of course, the philosophical question of can we actually build machines that are as intelligent as us? They might not have the, the, the conscience and the soul and all the things that make us human beings, but they might be able to make decisions faster than us. And then you're into the Stephen Hawking scenario, well, they'll evolve quicker and that's the end of us as a human race. So I think we have to think about these issues now while we've got time to think about it. Let's make a bit 10 minutes in. We're already talking about the destruction of the human race. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tom, you're, you're, pick us up again. You're reasonably well, cheerful. <coughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go more prosaic. I, um, I finally cracked and got an Alexa at, um, at Christmas, which is a big deal for me because Amazon have the most unpleasant press office in, in journalism. Um, <laughs> they, uh, I used to deal with the Tamil Tiger press office and, and they, they kidnapped me. Uh, they're, they're worse than uh, the Amazon <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, if, if they could be weaponized, then I, I don't know what would happen. But I bought it, and this astonishing technology. It's, I mean, it's, it's like magic. And I have, a, I have a, a sat-nav in my car that's voice recognition. And there, if I say SE14 rather than SE14, it won't get it. If, I, if there's background noise, it won't get it. But you can just tell it what you want. And it's, and as, I mean, as, as a journalist, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a future of someone transcribing my interviews for me. And, <laughs> that's, and the, that's the thing we all dream of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, which would be absolutely wild. And uh, my, my dystopia is, I, I guess, actually related to that. My, after six months of doggedly trying, my two-and-a-half-year-old has now been able to get Alexa to respond to him. Oh. And so uh, my days of listening to Radio 4 in the morning are gone, and my days of listening to Baby Shark or whatever song he's listening to at the moment <laughs> are upon us. Well, let's um, stick with... Uh, let's stick with Alexa. I don't have one. Nor do I. And I... Have we reached a point in sort of domestic technology where it's solving problems which don't really exist? Is it just a gimmick? I mean, I, th I, th I think it's... It's amazing because you don't have to get your phone up out to work something when you're cooking things How for the kids. How busy are you? Well, I've got two kids, <laughs> <laughs> two and four, so quite busy. Um, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a gimmick. And I know that, um, and that might be what Dame Wendy's thinking. Is, is, I know computer security people have some fairly serious reservations about having something that's continually listening to you in your home. Um, and I accept that, but it's cool tech. Mm. Well, this is the problem. It's like um, the Facebook thing, and the, you know, we buy our watches that were made in China. I don't know what's on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I remember the. Sorry, this is going scary again. The Doctor episode <laughs> where they all suddenly get turned into zombies because they've all had a chip implanted in them by somebody. And, um, you know, the thing is, we don't know what we're buying, but we, because they're, if they help us do things yeah. and they, 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 like, um, we want to connect with people through Facebook, we want to be able to uh, talk. I mean, it's a cool thing to be able to tell a machine to so tune was, into the right TV out, channel. There was a study out last week about using... Because, of course, Alexa isn't hearing what you're saying. It's doing maths. It's adding... 2 plus 2 to get 4, but it could equally add minus a million plus a million and 4 to get 4. 
And so it's perfectly hackable. And it was a study using embedding commands, hidden audio commands in normal music, so that you could have your radio playing parts of Penzance and it could actually be nicking your money through your Alexa and talking to your PayPal app and instructing it to do these things. Um, so there's a lot going on, but you know, it sets my kitchen time without me having to push any buttons. <laughs> Is this this kind of the Internet of Things and home home uh, assistance things like this? It's this dream of digital Athens that we will be like Athens. We will be like the citizens of Athens. We have all the time to look into art and philosophy and do politics. Uh, and meanwhile, our our electronic slaves will be doing the boring bit. But I actually think it's going to be more like digital Wolf Hall, where your house is full of servants but you never really know who they're working yeah. for. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Matt? I, you, do you have an Alexa? No, I don't, and I wouldn't want one. And, um, what, why not? Even with, even with the data protection bill becoming law on Friday, <laughs> and therefore them having to delete the, 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 um, uh, the data, I, 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 don't, I don't want one because I think that there's an essential humanity that we've got to preserve all the way through this. So. Um, I'm a, um, I, I, I wear a, an old 1980s Casio watch. Uh, I've got a calculator on it. Um, no, I've got, I've got my head, right? Oh. And, if it, and if it gets really complicated, like, you know, more than two what, plus two, square. I can get my phone out. Okay. Um, so, um, the, uh, so I think you've got to be, uh, I think actually, uh, on a serious point, um, we haven't, as a society and as individuals yet, at all come to terms with how we use this technology for the better. Um, and it's brought about loads of unintended uh, downsides, like the fact that the uh, electric light that light backlights these... Uh, Christ. You see? I got distracted. Um, <laughs> the, um, the electric light that light backlights, those is the same as the sunlight that keeps you awake, uh, and therefore it's harder to sleep at night. Um, and that's just one of a multitude of examples where no law can sort out how society... Um, and you know, each of us as individuals responds to that. But I think there's a whole series of norms and what in the last century we might have called etiquette um, so that we can live our lives in a way that makes the most of this kit um, but doesn't actually knock out a load of other pleasantnesses. So, for instance, I have a rule. We have a, we have a phone, a box in the kitchen. And when we go into the house, we put the phone in the box. Um, and there's a charger there, so it's quite helpful. But then if somebody phones me, I, I, I don't hear it. And I'm not distracted. And, and, and I might check it every hour or two. Um, and if, you know, if the, the middle of a reshuffle, I'll check it more often than that. The, uh, but, 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 the, but the serious point is that then to the question, which is who's in charge, um, my wife is very much in charge. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and me to a lesser extent. And... Um, and, and so I've been really struck by the fact that in this job, as a, uh, I meet a lot of the uh, tech um, uh, pioneers, and a huge proportion of them don't let their children use technology. And so I don't let my children. My eldest is 11. I have three. So like you, I'm very busy. And I, I don't give in to allowing them to just use the iPad because it makes life easier. We don't allow that. Uh, because we think it's better for their upbringing, and we try to apply the same things to ourselves. So we are, we're the first generation that's muddling our way through how do you get the most out of the technology whilst remaining essentially a human being and have the interpersonal relationships rather than entirely through the phone. Now, I'm intrigued by this. We've got about 200 people here. The only people I've ever heard doing this thing with putting phones in boxes is politicians. And they keep talking... 
hands up if anyone else does that here. Three. Are you all politicians? <laughs> so um, I think it's really interesting that you, you're doing that, but how can government... Is there a role for government yes. in that? I mean, there's, there's loads of roles for government. Um, firstly, the, um, the law, right? We're changing the law, as I said, on Friday. Does that um, mean we all have to put phones in boxes? In, in your kitchen. Is that what GDPR is? In, in GDPR is put your phone in a box um, and everything will be fine. Uh, well, it probably would. Let's be honest, it probably would. Um, so, no, so there's, there's, there's GDPR, there's uh, making sure that you're... Explain what GDPR is, okay, so because apart from all these emails we've been getting in the last week, <laughs> that's right, it's just driving exactly. everybody mad. Explain no, but I tell you what, I've unsubscribed from a whole series of uh, emails yes, that I used to get because I'm being told... It's the I'm most popular thing the government's done in it's years. Done a one-off. <laughs> and um, uh, so GDPR is um, passed uh, with the Data Protection Bill in the UK Parliament, and GDPR is at the European level, um, is about putting, requiring essentially, other than in certain circumstances, essentially, um, if people are going to use your data, they need to have your consent to use it. And the consent, critically, needs to be written in plain English. Uh, not in these the cookie boxes at the bottom, they'll go, uh, and not in 50-page terms of references, where the BBC did this great experiment where they put one of the terms of reference was, we will kill your firstborn, and if you have no children, we'll kill your dog. <laughs> and 100% of people still sign up to because, of course, we don't read it. So, so plain English consent is going to be the basis of use of data, with some exemptions, for instance, for scientific use, uh, for research. And... Um, uh, and that, so there is the law, and at the weekend we announced that we're going to legislate on, uh, on, on uh, internet safety, which is about looking at codes of conduct for social media sites so that they actually enforce the codes of conduct. For instance, they say you've got to be 13 before you sign up to Facebook, and all you actually have to do is um, tick a box or flick a, sw a swipe uh, to say that you're 13, and a very, very high proportion of people do that. Um, and it's impossible to know how many of them are and aren't 13. So, there's a, so there is a role for law, both, both law we're, we're just about to have come into force and future laws keeping up to speed with this. But a huge amount of it is not about laws. So whether it's ethical standards, for instance, you mentioned the driverless cars, so having standards that industry then coalesce around on a non-statutory basis, but because they want an answer and they don't really want to... Then, as companies, they don't feel comfortable answering the question, ethical questions themselves. Um, or then just society learning how to cope with this stuff. How do we parent in an age when every kid wants one of these? Um, how do we make sure children get enough sleep, for instance? How do we interact? Is it reasonable for you to go on your phone in the middle of a dinner party? All right. Open question. I think it's outrageous, and it happens all the time. And I'm the digital secretary. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, oh, you don't get more digital than the person in charge of digital for the country. And can you please put your phone away? And we've got a box over there where you can put it. Um, and, um, and so, do, you, but do you not have many people around? <laughs> Not anymore, no. I wonder what happened. No, but, you know, so, so there's a whole set of just how we live our lives and make the most of this stuff without, uh, without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But, but isn't there a difference between the law saying, like, like the GDPR, the, the, saying to companies, if you are collecting people's data, you must follow these rules, you have to tell them this, they have to give you consent, and something like codes of conduct, which is like going into a public arena and saying to people, you must interact according to these rules, otherwise you'll be barred. 
isn't there a danger there that what you get is the law encroaching on people's freedom to interact in what's essentially public spaces now are largely digital spaces. Yes. And if we're to have free speech and free and robust debate, don't we have to leave ourselves open to rudeness, trolls, bad behaviour, all the things that go on, and finding ways between people to deal with that? Yes. Rather than having a law that says you, you no swearing and no bad language. I mean, we already have people being... You know, taken to court for bad taste jokes on social media. Isn't yes. that already too far? I think it's a question of, of, of degree. So I think that the public spaces comparison is an important one. So the proposal we made at the weekend was about the, the responsibility being on the companies. They have these terms of conduct. Uh, they just don't enforce them. Um, and to require them to enforce them more. For instance, if, you know, in a way, a social media platform is a bit like a market square. And if you're a company who has um, uh, the public through your doors, you have responsibilities, a duty of care to that public. And if you curate a market square, say your um, Blue Water shopping mall, um, you have a responsibility to um, the good conduct within that sphere. Of course, the, there's in, the individuals only have to abide by the law. Um, but, but companies that curate a public space do have a higher duty to ensure that that public space is, a, um, is kept in reasonable order. But they, they would, sorry, go on. Isn't that like having private security? I mean, Blue Water, if you, if you tried to have, I don't know, if you tried to set up a political demonstration or something, Blue Water's private security guards would have you out of there before your feet could touch the ground. I, I speak as a former busker, so I, I know what I'm <laughs> talking about. Although, ironically, the same... The same shopping centre that threw us out within 10 seconds then came out and said, could they book us for their children's yeah. party? Uh, but that's a digression. Uh, but no, it, it, isn't that a danger then that effectively, because so much public debate happens in digital spaces, they will all be policed by private security guards? So you've got to, you, I agree that you've got to have uh, the balance right, but crucially, um, there's a question of um, who makes that sort of judgment in a, in a free society. And um, I, I was struck by the fact that, for instance, Facebook have decided that if you, might, if you target ads, if you have targeted ads as a, mm -hmm. uh, as a political entity, then you have to publish any ad that's served to everybody so that everybody can see the, the, the aggregation of the ads that you're serving. I think this is a that's really good move. Really good. The problem I have with it is that I think in a, uh, in a, in a free society, it should be society as a whole manifested through, um, through legislation uh, to decide how our elections are run. And what about other sites? Are we going to just ask them politely to follow the good idea Facebook's had? Or, are we get, or if, there's a, if there's a judgment over those individual rules and are they followed, is that for Facebook? Why is Facebook suddenly the curator of the public space, particularly in respect to how we run a democracy? So you know, I, I think that there is a, the role for government is to ensure that um, that you get the essential freedoms, but also that we as a society are broadly in charge of this technology, um, not uh, that we don't aggregate, uh, uh, give up those responsibilities to, to, uh, to a global multinational. Let me bring uh, Wendy and Tommy. Wendy, what have you made of the debate, the, the sort of shift we've seen in Facebook from this sort of cool and groovy company that politicians are desperate to sort of hang out with, not wearing ties and sitting on beanbags. And now there, there has been a big shift, and it's partly because of what happened with Donald Trump and what 
supposedly happened with uh, Brexit. What, what have you made of the, the, the shift in the attitude and, and how people now view this, this huge company? Uh, well, I think most people have no clue what, uh, what happens to their data. I mean, most, to most people, the internet is just magic. Right? It is. And these companies, you, you do stuff, they don't have no idea what's happening to their data. And so they, they picked up something scary was happening. And, um, but, and, I, and I was sitting in the hairdressers the other day, and the lady next to me said, well, how do I get out of this Facebook? I don't want to be involved in this anymore. Um, would you think, well, OK, so this is beginning to hit sort of <coughs> you know, um, your average type person. But uh, the interesting thing, I think, um, is that you know, Facebook's been around 13 years. And, and the Silicon Valley companies, um, They've, uh, well, I mean, the Microsofts that have been around a bit longer, but they've, they haven't been around that long. I don't think in 13 years' time they'll be around. There won't be a Facebook? Uh, no, not in the way we know it today, no. Because, and, and, and because there's an awful lot of change coming. The, the technology is not standing still. Yeah. So you're sitting here saying, oh, we're, you know, actually, I mean, of course, there will be companies trying to get us to use technology. Um, uh, we, um, you know, we're not going to lose what we know. We, we want to communicate with people, so we'll want uh, networks. But um, there's a huge move, and GDPR is a step in this direction, but it's very European-based. The rest of the world is largely, I don't know, I'd say ignore it, but they're, they're not, they're, we'll see how it plays out. Um, China's certainly ignoring it, uh, and India probably will as well. Um, Russia almost certainly will. But, uh, but, but what I was going to say was that um, the, uh, there's a big move, uh, and their blockchain comes into this, and I has, I had, I've said it, blockchain. But um, uh, what, to move back, well, don't worry about it. It's just the, let's not worry about blockchain, but it's the <laughs> fact that the web and the internet were meant to be decentralized, right? And they've, for all sorts of reasons that I could go into, including network theory, have become uh, very centralized in these big companies. That won't last, I don't think, because there's a big move by the, the science community to decentralize stuff again and uh, to enable us to uh, actually, and GDPR, as I said, is a step in this direction, to enable us to take ownership of our personal data in a meaningful way. Uh, it's, it's difficult because most people, including myself, are not going to be very responsible when it comes to looking after your own data. But this is the move. This is the meme at the moment. But technology can also be a solution to some of these, uh, the problems that we're seeing, as well as part of the, as well as having thrown up the mm. problems. Well, so, we invented it. We sort of got the help sorted out. Right. So um, <laughs> I, you mentioned I've got an app for communicating with my constituents, uh, and um, it's caused some hilarity, which I, um, which I welcome. Uh, the, uh, at least it means they care. Well, at least it means people care enough to laugh. And, yeah, uh, exactly. the, uh, but it's, it's led to, I am absolutely adamant, partly just to prove the point, that it's a, going to be a pleasant place to be. So we said right at the start, if anybody's rude about anybody, other than Mickey taking out of me, uh, not only does that post get taken down, but you're off. Um, and so we set a tone and, a, and, a, and, a, and we curated <coughs> a, a tone for the public space that is the Matt Hancock app. And the result has been, it's been, I mean, this is the result it has on people. People smile and, and you get cheerfulness and, and, the, and the responses. And now I've, I've got a piece of artificial intelligence that I got from Jigsaw, which is Google's uh, sort of internal think tank that they developed that tells my moderators um, 
how offensive a piece of uh, a post is automatically from um, the algorithm, from the machine learning, of, from the machine reading it, so that they can, they can take it down faster and they get an alert if there's a particularly aggressive one. And we're going to move it once it's bedded in so that it automatically takes down offensive content. So that is me choosing that on my site, if you want to be aggressive, you can go elsewhere, you, know, you can go back onto Twitter. And um, there's an, and you're, now, you're pulling a face and, to mind. And now, hold on. And if you, if you do want to be that's offensive, that's a bit aggressive. That would be. If that would you do be want to be offensive, that's fine. Just do it elsewhere. Because on this social media site, we are even if we disagree, we're nice to each other whilst we do it. I was just, I'm doubtful that an algorithm can know when something's offensive. I mean, no, you you creating your space. I'm all in favour. It's like you know, you have a dinner party. You say, phone in the box <laughs> until at least dessert. I mean, yeah. you know, it's absolutely fair enough. But and how, how can an algorithm tell when something's offensive? Algorithms are notoriously bad at irony. And if we do get the robot apocalypse, it's only our advanced sarcasm skills that are going to save us. Well, this, <laughs> well, this, this is why... This Robots is why I mean, can't tell when something's well, offensive. How, I mean, offence is something that a person feels the, in response is, to something. So this is why, at first... We're going to, it's going to mark them, and then a human is going to decide if they are or not. But it, but it, but it ranks the offensiveness. It's, uh, I, I've, I've done a story on this algorithm, and it's, it's quite good. Um, it, <laughs> it, gives, it gives everything a score of an, out of 100 on offensiveness, and you can set your bar, and it'll flag up, and it'll, you're completely right, it'll get things wrong. It'll, it won't get when you're sort of joshing or when you're talking about female dogs, literally about, you know, think these things won't, won't work. And, but it's quite a good way of cutting the work for the, and it, there's a great example on the Google website, and you can set the slider. Yeah. And it's, it's at Google, bear in mind it's a U US company, has actually used Brexit comments as its test bed. And <laughs> you set the slider and slowly you see the world get better. And these, are these, are these comments... What, so at the end, does it only say it's working really well? Yeah, at the end, it's just, it's just Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the key is, there is a, there is a point to, um, to, to what you're saying, which is even when, it, even when, if we can get it there, we use it automatically to remove bad content, there'll still be an appeal to a human decision-maker. So, so having that appeal to a human decision-maker is important in this stuff, especially as it, as it, as it learns and it trains. As we've moved on to algorithms and how they don't uh, always work, Tom, in the, even in the last couple of weeks, we've had a story about the Met Police were using facial, re facial recognition technology. It had a 98% of its ma matches turned out to be wrong. There's a case of, in the uh, US courts, we're using an algorithm for sentencing, which basically turned out to be racist because if you put in racist yeah. bias, it, what it produces uh, afterwards ends up being racist. So what... That is basically the problem, isn't it? What you put into the algorithm is only as good as the information. And then you basically, well, if you put in rubbish, you get out of it. Yeah, also, I mean, so there's, there's a big issue at the moment that, uh, of, yeah, racist AI. Um, and one of the interesting things about the NHS opening its data, which, I mean, I think a risk contradiction, we've got to get past the fact that they still use fax machines before we start thinking about whether we can computerize this data and use it, is at least you've got a representative data set there of the whole population. So you can hopefully get around these things. But another, another issue, I think actually probably a bigger issue for things like sentencing in courts and stuff like that, is that it, it's the, the false positive 
on unlikely events rate. It's a statistical problem as much as an algorithmic one. So if you've got something that's you'd think very, very good, a test that's 99% of the time it's right, but it's something that happens very rare, let's say it's for screening terrorists, well, you're going to end up, for every correct terrorist you get on this 99% successful rate test, you're going to get 10,000 people who it's flagged because you're dealing with such a rare event, it's just not going to get them. And I think there's, in a, amidst the AI hype and using these things in law enforcement, I think you're ending up with that, which is a fundamental problem of statistics as much as artificial intelligence. Just because I'm conscious, we want to, we want to um, take questions as well. Let's just talk quick, quickly about driverless cars, the ethics of driverless cars. Uh, there was the case of Elaine Herzberg, who was killed by a self-driving Uber car which allegedly detected her as she crossed the road, but chose not to alter its course. And, Tom, I, you just explained this, because we talked about this last week. It, it's, it's a sort of updated version of the trolley. Yeah, problem. so, I mean, philosophers have been, have been having a lovely time, because they, they came up with this, this problem, which the, the, the trolley problem, this, this hypothetical situation that couldn't exist, but is a way of testing people's morality. Um, and it's if you've got a trolley going towards, forgive me, a lot of you know this, you've got a trolley on the tracks going towards five people, it's going to kill those five people, you can switch the tracks and kill one person instead, but then it's you who's made the decision, and there's various versions of this, you could push a fat person off the bridge to stop the trolley, save the five lives, but you've pushed the fat person off the bridge. These are all meant to be philosophically equivalent things. And they've been discussing this pointlessly for 40 years. And then suddenly driverless cars come out. They think, brilliant, we've got it. And actually, you, you chat to engineers of driverless cars, and they're like, no, in every situation, we're just going to brake as hard as we can. This is never going to occur. But they're, they're having a lovely time. And I, I chatted to one philosopher of law about whether we make deontological driverless cars or consequentialist driverless cars. <laughs> Let's talk. Um, uh, where, where do you stand on, on driverless cars? Good idea? Or are you, you going to leapfrog straight to flying, flying cars? Flying. No, I, I'm a big fan of getting there on autonomous uh, cars. Now, it, at a logical level, you <coughs> would say that um, if, a, if a, an autonomous vehicle is less likely to have an accident than a than a vehicle driven by a human, then that would be a step forward. But of course it's reasonable for society to actually demand standards that are a bit higher than that. Um, but um, nevertheless, the opportunity for, driver, for autonomous vehicles to um, save lives, make driving safer, um, and make it easier, and I hope eventually you know, reduce the need for, the, for so many cars. You know, cars spend 90% of their time Parked, more than 90% of the time parked all the way around London, especially the uh, suburbs built in the uh, before the 30s. They were built for, um, for uh, and right around the country, they were, they were built before the age that every house would have two cars. And so we have essentially parking lots along the sides of most streets in Britain. And so we can, it's not just about the saving lives, and I hope we can get to the point where they save lives. It's also about using people's capital better to, on better things. Wendy? It should reduce the need for personal car ownership totally once you get to 
uh, you know, autonomous cars, uh, autonomous vehicles uh, dominating. Yeah. And people will fly. stop wanting to, <laughs> to buy. Well, they, if they don't fly, we'll have to get a robot that can fill <laughs> potholes a bit quicker <laughs> than, the, uh, than the current system. Actually, there's a new piece of technology for that. That's very oh, is there? Yeah. Is it only available on your app? <laughs> <laughs> You just go around putting your dinner guest's phone in the pot. <laughs> um, them in. I don't have Tom that many. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So, Manager, let's talk about facial recognition. Uh, we talked a bit about it with the Met Police, but in China, recently, they picked out a fraud suspect who'd been to a pop concert where there were 50,000 people and he got spotted and was picked up uh, by the police. And I know you went to Oregon? Uh, Oakland. No, Oakland. Oakland. Oakland in, um, in San Francisco, uh, in San Francisco Bay. Yeah, they, they were my kind of poster children. As I, was, as I was wandering around finding out all the amazing things you can do with big data and thinking, yes, but this does all start to sound a bit like what China's aiming for, which is that big brother knows where you are all the time. And then I, and then I found out about Oakland, which is kind of across the bay from San Francisco, where they've been offered federal money to put in a, what they call a domain awareness center that links up loads of data from facial recognition cameras and number plate recognition cameras and all sorts of other things. And, uh, and the local council went, brilliant, federal money, doesn't even cost us anything. Uh, and they were about to vote it through. And some citizens turned up and went, can we just see your privacy policy for this? And they didn't have one. So they had this, this local campaign where they roped in the American Civil Liberties Union and all sorts of local <laughs> groups and went, we really think you should have some privacy-based laws governing this stuff before you install it. And it really works. They, they scaled back what they were doing, but more importantly, they set up a privacy commission that included citizens and the Civil Liberties Union, and that now writes the laws before they get any new bit of tech. And, and that, I thought, was great, because they didn't say, hey, we don't want this technology. They went, this could be really useful, you know, if children get kidnapped or if there's an earthquake, uh, things like that. But they did say, we want democratic oversight of this, and we want to explicitly say... Why do you want this technology? What's it for? What data do you need? How long will you keep it? Who will see it? And we will come back and check. So for me, they were kind of 
yes, there is actually hope that we can embrace the technological promise, but not necessarily have to go like China, where the government just goes, well, we should be able to know everything about you. We've got facial recognition. We're going to give you social scores on how you behave. And, uh, and if you step out of line, we'll know everything, which I, I don't think would be a good thing. We don't know, though, you see. I think uh, I'm not defending the Chinese in what they're doing, but I think it's an interesting experiment. So I liken this. This is the white mice in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've had one experiment, which was the same internet for everybody. And now they've seen that that doesn't work in some ways. It does in others. So now they're trying again. This is the white mice. Um, and now we've got a different one type of internet in the, the States, another one in Europe, another one in China. And they're actually, you know, we're doing live experiments with huge populations here. which is, And the Chinese don't view it as something. You know, they, they get on with their lives. And, the, you know, Matt was talking about on his app, everybody behaves well because <laughs> he polices that. Well, that's what the Chinese say about the social scoring. You know, they encourage him to go on my app. I mean, everybody's welcome. It's only a matter of time. Everybody in Suffolk. Well, given that I feel like, we'll come to question, but I feel like we're drifting towards the robot apocalypse. So I looked up, there was in February, there was a report from the terrifying sounding Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. And they warned about the potential uh, uh, malicious use of AI by rogue states, criminals and terrorists, hacking, speech synthesis used to impersonate targets, spamming emails, autonomous vehicles being hijacked and crashing into things, commercial drones, face-targeting missiles, uh, and then it being used in politics as well, targeted propaganda, highly believable fake videos and all that. And all that in the next five to ten years, it's all, it all sounds like it's a long way off, but potentially it's not. Um, so, well, so I went to meet the Centre for Existential Risk, who are in, based in Cambridge, um, Cambridge University, and they study asteroid impacts, they study nanomachines. The idea is low probability, high impact events, literally in this case of um, asteroids, obviously. Um, and there's some, there's some big names on it. Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, is, is one of the big... And he, his view is hum, humanity needs to augment itself, ultimately, with machines, or we're going to go extinct by machines and his, his corollary of that is he reckons if we're looking for intelligent life on other planets then we should really be looking for a life of the mechanical kind rather than the, uh, the biological, biological kind yeah. um, but it leads to quite surreal arguments over Trinity College High Table where you know one of them will be talking about uh, whether we're going to become like pets or whether we'll be the, the mountain gorillas of the new world, sort of just ignored and slowly going extinct. Um, or my, my favourite extinction scenario was, which actually speaks to... <laughs> We've all got one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sort of speaks to the, the sort of banal pitfalls of programming. Um, is one of them outlined this scenario whereby you, um, you have a paperclip factory and you give it the goal to make paperclips efficiently um, and no one thinks to tell it that it shouldn't denude the atmosphere of oxygen whilst it does so. And so in the future, aliens come to our planet and just see a planet full of paperclips being efficiently produced, and that's it. Well, on, <laughs> on that cheerful thought, 
What what a debate! I hope you've I hope you've uh, learned some things. We haven't discussed my favourite stories in the paper the past couple of weeks. Was the robot that could build an IKEA chair, <laughs> but only after it stood and looked at all the pieces for 15 minutes. And I think, well, that's what we do. So uh, there's there's chance for us yet. Uh, please say a huge thanks to our panel: Tom Whipple, Wendy Hall, Matt Hancock, and Randy Hartless. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.